Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is episode 26, recorded Thursday, April 18th, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our fifth of 2019, we are joined by Lorraine McNeil, Executive Director of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Calgary Region, CMHA Calgary, Suzanne Duncan, Associate Vice President of Donor Relations at the Centre for Addictions and Mental Health, CAMH in Toronto, Siobhan Doherty, Development Officer, Plan Giving at Dalhousie University, and Kelly Morris, a Senior Consultant at Betrayal Group. Our topic, Taking Care of Yourself First, Mental Health for Fundraisers and Nonprofit Leaders. Mental health, not that long ago, was something we just did not talk about. It used to be that talking about mental health or about mental illness could have meant the loss of employment, social isolation, or worse. The last 10 years has seen a huge and much-needed acceptance of mental health in both our personal and our professional lives. The nonprofit sector is rife with high expectations and reduced resources. Stress and workplace balance often result in mental health issues for nonprofit staff. Join us in conversation with four amazing leaders and fundraisers, all of whom have professional and lived experience with mental health, as they share with us how to better take care of our own mental well-being. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to Episode 26 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, Powered by Betrayal. This is our fourth episode of 2019. Our topic today, taking care of yourself first, mental health for fundraisers and nonprofit leaders. We have four amazing guests with us today. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Halifax, we have Siobhan Doherty. As if being a plan-giving officer at Dalhousie is not special enough, Siobhan is also a regular on our podcast. This is her third visit to the show. Siobhan first joined us in our second season on the episode about millennials. She recently joined us again this season for our first episode hosted by a guest host. Siobhan joined us for our Women in Philanthropy episode hosted by my business partner, Andrea McManus. Welcome back, Siobhan. Thanks. Happy to be here. Clearly, I keep coming back, so... It's a great time. Exactly. You're a regular now. Um, Siobhan, I know that you've been busy on a number of fronts, and I also know that you just got back from the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, CAGP National Conference in Montreal. In our yeah. prep call, you said it was an awesome conference. Can you tell, tell us and our listeners a bit about why it was such a great conference and, and maybe a few of the key trends in plan giving that you might have heard about? Yeah, so uh, there was about around 500 attendees, all um, gift planners from across the country, some who do it full-time, some who do it off the side of their desk. So a great place to make connections. Uh, we spoke a lot about the wealth transfer that's coming um, and the wealth that's in uh, states that we can access as fundraisers if we do it correctly. And we talked a lot about blended transformational gifts, having our donors give in their lifetime but also give through their estates or through insurance plans to keep their legacy living after they're gone. So it was just well done. The education sessions were great. So many experts. It was really fantastic. That's awesome, Siobhan. I think you also mentioned that that blended giving thing is something that sometimes major gifts officers 
um, might not actually do that extra step of talking about um, not only the gift of today, but uh, have people considered making a planned gift as well. And I, I yeah, think that would be interesting. Go it's ahead. A great, it's a great opportunity to do it when you're having the conversation about their major gift. So you're talking to them about what they want to do in their lifetime and the impact they want to make. Uh, kind of just like a, an addition to your already existing ask. So if you know they're going to make this lifetime gift, why not? talk to them about their state at the same time. But uh, we work in silos and planned giving and major giving often, so I think uh, the sector is really trying to bring those together and have the donor be able to make large transformational gifts and give them that opportunity. I think it's good practice. Well, thanks for that, Siobhan. Next, joining us from Toronto, we have Suzanne Duncan. Suzanne is also not a stranger to our podcast. Suzanne joined us in Season 2. We're now in Season 3 for an episode on gratitude and donor recognition. Suzanne and I have also had the pleasure of co-presenting at two conferences in the past year on the topic of naming. We were in Ottawa together for the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy Conference, and we spoke again in Toronto at the AFP Congress last fall. A wee plug for this year's Congress in Toronto coming up in November, I think. Suzanne and I were such a hit that we've been invited back. Can't wait. And welcome back to the podcast as well, Suzanne. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Suzanne, in addition to your work as the Associate Vice President for Donor Relations at the Center for Addictions and Mental Health, CAMH, you also teach fundraising. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about your teaching gig, uh, like where are you teaching, how long you've been doing it, and what, what motivates you to keep doing it? Sure. Um, I'm very lucky to be teaching the Introduction to Fundraising course at Ryerson University right in the heart of Toronto. Um, It is a very interesting class because it's part of a certificate program, but it's also an an elective class for students who are studying community services like social work, nursing, uh, child and youth education, all of those kinds of things. Uh, I've been doing it for about 10 years and actually had the wonderful privilege of getting to write all the curriculum, which is great because I am a little bit of a nerd. And so I was really able to bring in a lot about the history of fundraising, its philosophical position in our worlds. We do some exercises in the first part of the class around making our own gifts, journaling those. And I have this wonderful privilege of getting to read 30 people from executive directors to you know 18-year-olds talking about the feelings that they have while they make a gift and after they have a gift uh, or after they've made that gift. And it's such a great insight that keeps me really refreshed as a fundraiser, keeps me really understanding the kind of mechanisms that are going on in people's emotional lives uh, as they're giving, but it also really helps shape a, a group of folks who many of them may never be professional fundraisers, but it helps them really open up to the idea of general generosity and how communities want to support and how people really find a sense of purpose in giving and supporting charities. So it's just, it just feeds my soul. Well, I'm not surprised that you would lay it out that way. And I'm glad that you used the word nerd before I did <laughs> with you, because I love that aspect of you. And thanks for, for doing that uh, in addition to your regular work, but also the teaching work. So thank you. Um, joining us, joining us from right here in Calgary, we have Lorene McNeil. Lorene is the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association, CMHA Calgary region. Whew, say that three times fast. Um, uh, Betrayo has had the pleasure of working with Lorene and her team at CMHA, and we are very excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Lorene. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Lorene, we're going to hear a lot about mental health from you later in the show, and I hope specifically about Recovery College. But right now, 
My curiosity was piqued when I saw that although you work as a leader in health, your undergraduate degree is in engineering. My undergraduate degree is also in engineering. How did you go from engineering to being a mental health leader? Good question. And one of the things that uh, um, attracted me to engineering was actually the fact that um, by taking it, in, it was called industrial engineering, we actually study people as part of any system or process. So I'm from Cape Breton. I grew up with a dad as a teacher and a mom who was a deep community volunteer. So I thought this ability to work with people across systems and sectors, uh, really walking side by side with them really appealed to me, uh, being able to give back by learning from others and a big believer in power with versus power over relationships. So, uh, again, the idea that I could work with people as an engineering profession uh, was very attractive. So you can imagine it worked. I've worked in every sector um, in lots of different capacities because your job is to put people at the center. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that, how you got from engineering to, to mental health. And that was actually a quite a, it seemed like a, a rather natural flow I'm a little bit jealous. You have a did you do some work or postgraduate work at at the MIT Sloan School? Yes, I did. That's of course for engineers is the mecca. It um, is. I, I took I, yeah uh, yeah. <laughs> I was super jealous when I saw that on your TV. Yeah, well, you know, it it I took a certificate uh, executive leadership certificate there, so uh a fantastic program and uh yeah, you, uh, you you learn how deep the profession is, but also how wide it is. Uh, so yeah. it was a great yeah. experience. Oh, great. Thanks again for, for joining us. Finally, joining us uh, uh, also from Calgary, we have one of my business colleagues, Kelly, Kelly Morris. Kelly is a work colleague and also a close family friend. Kelly is a senior associate at Betrayo and was our lead associate on the CMHA uh, engagement with Lorene. Kelly is also keenly interested in, like all of us on this show, mental health issues, both personally and professionally. I've been wanting to have Kelly join us ever since I started this podcast. Well, welcome, Kelly. Kelly, we're so glad to have nice. you. Thank you, Vincent. <laughs> Good to be here. Just so you know, we're also not in the same place, so this is cool. So he's somewhere in California. Yeah, yeah, at it's, the office. it's just uncomfortable <laughs> when we're doing it a podcast in the same room, yeah. Um, uh, Kelly, we're going to hear more about your thoughts on mental health and fundraising later in the show. But before that, like many of us, uh, we have our work lives, our personal lives, and our community lives. You've been blessed with two amazing children, Ella and Curtis. Both of them are involved in, in uh, freestyle skiing, a sport that pretty much consumes your life outside of work. Can you share with us a bit about what drives you to be so involved as a volunteer and maybe a, a bit about what your typical winter weekend looks like? I'll start with the typical winter weekend, and thank goodness we're not doing it this weekend because look at how beautiful it is here in Calgary today. But um, Oh, sure. Right in for Suzanne. <laughs> yes. Sorry, Suzanne. It's beautiful here. Probably going to be 22, if you can believe it, in April. It's Whoa. Pretty weird. Yeah. Crazy. Um, my typical weekend is, you know, just skiing with the family, but mostly my daughter, who's been driving this for about five years now, and she's hitting the big time with uh, skiing and Canadian championships and, uh, you know, has high hopes for future outlook in the uh, moguls department. So if you've ever watched Mikkel Kingsbury at our Olympics, that's kind of the 
the love she has for this sport. Um, the good part is we get to travel all around this beautiful province of ours and a little bit into BC and might even go a little bit further uh, maybe next season. So we'll see. Um, and the second part of this question was, I forget already. So maybe yeah, sure. uh, like what, 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 like obviously your it's your children, but what motivates you to be a volunteer at that level? Oh, the volunteer piece. Well, early on, I didn't know anything about freestyle skiing. And so I just, I thought the best way to do that is to volunteer, which, you know, I think we all know about that. It's, uh, it's been a huge learning curve for me, but one that I realized early on that I could play a big part in it, just even helping organize, you know, our small nonprofit teams. And, uh, it's grown. I'm the social media manager for Freestyle Alberta and have been doing that for a number of years. I really enjoy that side. Keeps me on my toes for my, uh, my digital knowledge. And um, it allows me to share this awesome sport with uh, many, many people. So, yeah. Well, thanks uh, thanks for that, Kelly. Um, for those of you that um, are friends with Kelly on Facebook, and I know all of you will soon be, um, you can sometimes watch these amazing videos of Ella, you know, doing these massive jumps, and you go, OMG. So it's crazy uh, what happens there. And I always think about you, Kelly, when I think about uh, we watch uh, when the Olympics come around, we, they talk about the parents and uh, the commitment that the parents have to put in. And I know how much you, you, you and Zintas have put into this. So really uh, want to thank you for that. And I'm sure your kids will, too, someday when they're not teenagers. Um, <laughs> thanks for we'll talk about us. that in the mental health piece. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, let's get started. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this, our 26th podcast. Our topic today is taking care of yourself first, mental health for fundraisers and nonprofit leaders. The very fact that we are talking about this topic on a podcast tells me how far we have come in destigmatizing mental health. I know there's lots of ways to, to go, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that, but it's, we have come a long way. It was not that long ago that mental health was something you just did not talk about. Those in our lives who were suffering with mental health issues and challenges were taken out of or removed from society and our lives. Uh, what a change in the last 10 years. Mental health is not only talked about, but now we have articles and guidance on how to work with and hire employees who are suffering with mental health challenges. The nonprofit sector is widely acknowledged as a sector with high stress, poor workplace balance, high expectations, and rampant burnout rates. I don't think that was a commercial. Um, all of us, all of, all of which can <laughs> often and often does lead to mental health issues for nonprofit professionals. Siobhan, you've done public LinkedIn events, speaking very candidly about how you manage both your personal mental health and your career. Can you kick us off with what you've seen and are seeing in workplace mental health? For sure. Um, so I suffer from bipolar too. I was diagnosed with that in 2013. Um, and since then, I am regularly medicated. I regularly see a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, but work-life balance is something I think a lot of people struggle with, um, and I certainly struggle with it in this industry when I'm so passionate about my work. Um, I think my mental illness has made me a great fundraiser. It's what makes me ambitious and go-getter, and I always say it's hard for me to figure out where my mental illness uh, starts and where my personality begins, so they're kind of entwined together in that way. Um, so often I can get really excited and interested in a task, and I can kind of forget that you got to take time for your family and for yourself. Uh, so I think for me, it's really important to ensure that 
I schedule my time and I respect the schedule that I've created. Uh, I put in time blocks to have mindfulness moments. I put in time blocks to exercise. I ensure that I'm eating lunch and not going, not just working through it. Um, so obviously that doesn't happen every day, but you kind of do your best each and every day to uh, ensure you're taking those breaks that you need for yourself. And when you're with your family or your friends, that's your time with them and you're not attached to your cell phone and ignoring the people around you and focusing on your work. Well, I knew that you would start with something like that, and I think that's a great place to start with a very personal story. Um, and we don't all have to do that on this podcast. That's not what we're looking for. But I knew that, uh, that Siobhan, you had, had done that on the LinkedIn event so that you would be comfortable with that. And, you know, I wanted to give some space um, now for you, Lorene. You, you're a professional working in the field. You're also in the nonprofit sector. You've got a lot of intersections, um, much like Suzanne does, that are very professional and personal. I wondered if you wanted to, to, to weigh in with some of your thoughts. Yeah, I think, um, you know, building on Siobhan's point, uh, I've seen such a shift in how, uh, I think we've, we've normalized the experience of mental health and substance use in the workplace. I mean, we're not completely there, but, uh, the strides we've taken over the past, I'd say, five years are tremendous. And to give you an example, when I started at CMHA Calgary, being a mental, a community-based mental health organization that served, you know, uh, like we serve, you know, more than 30,000 Calgarians a year across a spectrum of services that my staff at that point were still, uh, very cautious about sharing their personal experience. Yet most people go into this work because of their lived experience. So I'm really proud to say that, you know, I, I estimated for our board of directors at one point that uh, I've doubled, I've been able to double the, the staff complement in the organization and uh, through the growth of recovery college and uh, peer support that I would say close to 80% of staff have disclosed either their lived experience wow. or, or family. Wow, that's so huge. It's I'm, huge. I'm, that's, but that's impressive. <laughs> So, you know, and that was just a random thought I had one day when I started to say, what can CMHA Calgary offer the workplace and corporate Calgary? It was really, my goodness, you know, it's that, you know, that ability to create uh, a, you know, a safe place for people to disclose. And, and then you start to see the benefit because then the next person will share. And, and again, it's, it's shared in a, in an ability to, to uh, really build the confidence of anybody that walks in our organization. So um, it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of, that people, you know, quietly or confidently share their story. And And I think, Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, on that point, I think um, it can be really scary to disclose to your employer, and I think in in fundraising as well, people, sometimes if they don't understand mental health, I mean, I've had people be like, well, if you have bipolar, are you going to go off, like, fly off the handle with a donor, that sort of thing? Um, and I've had comments <laughs> right. like that. Like, that's not really how it works. Um, so I think All the stereotypes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's amazing that you guys hit 80%. <laughs> that, that is uh, – has it changed the culture at, at CMHA, do you think? Absolutely. <laughs> and and our focus on, you know, so what we what we did and, you know, I'm, I love strategy and, you know, when I when I took over, it was community mental health, and and Suzanne can probably speak to this. You know, there's there's the formal system, and then there's community system. And 
the two don't naturally intersect. And I had come from Alberta Health Services, and I had worked at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And again, being an engineer, I just follow pathways. And I, I thought it was so fascinating that there was kind of this lack of respect for what I saw were some of the most passionate and dedicated employees um, in the field. Because they, 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 you know, again, we get the privilege of being able, we are not time dependent. We can sit down and talk to somebody and have a coffee for an hour, allowing somebody to tell their story and to be a deep listener and, you know, working with um, very highly driven professionals who gets an hour to spend time with a patient or a client. So, you know, I've really been an advocate for the work because, you know, I, I, I really appreciate and respect all uh, professionals, but I saw something really special in the field, and you know, uh, we moved that even f- further by creating uh, one of the first peer schools in Canada that allows us to uh, offer 70 hours of classroom training and a 50-hour practicum in the community. Start building, uh, you know, a, a profession called peer support that actually is very welcomed by the formal system. So I'm. Again, allowing people to use that. We say you are an expert by experience and uh, with um, with training and support, uh, the outcomes associated with your interaction with a, a trained peer supporter, uh, you can imagine how quickly you can build trust with uh, an individual or a family member by just being able to listen and, and really um, be there as that side-by-side support. I love that. Um, so you, you mentioned Suzanne. I'm gonna. That's a nice doorway for for you to walk through, Suzanne. Did you want to weigh in on uh, uh, this, that, or the other uh, on the topics we're talking about? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've always been very um, interested in mental health. I kind of grew up in a family in a community where mental health and addiction were really at the forefront of all of our lives and choices, but we never talked about it. And if there was a conversation, it was just shame, blame, weakness. Um, and uh, and that really um, motivated me to want to be an advocate and to speak up, but it certainly stopped me from seeing what was happening in my own life. Um, and uh, I think about myself, you know, as, as a leader in a workplace, as an advocate for mental health, and as a human being, and I was knocking it out of the park in two areas and completely neglecting the human that I was. Um, and so much of what you said, Siobhan, I was just nodding in complete agreement, you know, um, the the things that you have to do on a day-to-day basis to make sure that you are taking care of yourself so that you can be a strong advocate and you can be a strong leader. And so often, you know, working, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to work in a, in a large organization now, but I spent most of my career working in very small places. And that weight of responsibility, that idea that if I don't get done what I need to get done, somebody's actually not going to have a house or somebody's not going to be able to eat. And you carry that weight with you. And if you're not taking active steps to replenish that, to examine that, to understand that, and to honor that, you just end up like a shell of a person. And that shell of a person can't be a good leader and a good advocate. So it's so important to look at that whole piece and to really develop tools for your own resiliency, for your own mental health, and to, you know, personally understand the signs of when I am not okay and be able to feel permission from my workplace to be able to take the time I need away to ensure that I can be okay okay and that I can bring my whole self to work. But I think Thank sometimes you, I think that's a that's such a great point and I think sometimes 
we forget that mental health and mental like being mentally healthy and mental well being is a lot is a lot of work sometimes. Oh my god! Yeah. You can't you can't yeah. just walk into the gym and pick up a five hundred pound weight and there you're a bodybuilder. <laughs> you have to build that up and skills. Absolutely. Have good mental health are the same things. It takes time and it takes work to actually mm-hmm. be in a healthy space mentally. And I think sometimes we forget that we think it's easy to just be mindful and all those things and it's a checkbox, but it's not. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. I think, too, yeah, this is, if this I is can my mindful I... moment. I got to check it out. Yeah. Sorry, is that mm-hmm. you, Maureen? Oh, no, Kelly. I was just going to say, Sorry, too, Kel. what we have to be mindful of is it can it changes, too, depending on where you're at, right? So yeah. you might always be rebuilding yourself and figuring out what's next to, you know, get to that, you know, better level if you suffered a little bit again or, you know, and that you will and that you're going to be okay and having that confidence to move forward is always something to hold on to, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's also about building, um, you know, a strong network around you and actually accessing tools. You know, it's so funny that I would spend my whole day talking about tools people could access and never access them myself. Um, and sort of giving <laughs> yeah. yourself, you know, giving yourself permission to say, hey, actually, I do need to have that conversation with my doctor. I do need to look at medication. I do need to seek therapy. I do need to do this work and not say, you know, somehow when you're talking about this work all the time or you're sharing it with others, you forget that it's also there for you. Uh, and that that was a really big moment for me a few years ago when I started to understand, hey, what's happening here is literally the same thing as I tell stories about when they happen to other people. And so how do I access all these things that we say are so important and bring down my own personal stigma and shame, which I didn't even realize I was carrying to be able to do what I needed to do to take care of myself? Mm. Yeah. Totally agree. Kelly, I um, I, I wonder what are some of the strategies that you use for self care, or when you need to take that that uh, address any 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 sort of um, cases around mental health for yourself. I think Siobhan, what, you were saying it. You know, it's about also scheduling things and um, making sure you put them in the calendar and you don't miss them. You know, you eat, mm-hmm. you sleep. Um, mm-hmm. Those are really important things to me. And if I'm drawing like a pyramid of my life, health sits for me at the very top. Um, because without that, I don't have, you know, the family, which is right underneath and then, you know, work and, um, you know, a little bit of fun and obviously skiing, like we talked about, you know, all these things don't happen without me being healthy. And so it's just um, ways of doing that. Like, I guess even with our phones and all those fancy things we have, I can schedule my workouts and I go and I'm super pumped about it. And then in days, like even today is a really good example. I am so busy that I decided today I'm going to work. And so I actually was able to change it. You know, like I, but tomorrow I'll do it instead because it's Good Friday, right? Like, so there's different things, but it's always at the top of my mind is just staying Mm -hmm. healthy, eating well, um, I kind of uh, pretty much, you know, took out a lot of things like, I don't know, extra drinking. You know, I don't have that extra glass of wine anymore. Like things like that have just been helpful, especially as I've gotten a little older. So, Well, well Kelly, uh-huh. I, 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 I wanted to just add, uh, given that I'm a friend of yours and I've noticed and one of the things I admire uh, most about uh, you is that you're very forthright um, when you need that time. Uh, like when you say, I'm not, I'm not feeling well today or... I, I'm not. I'm not. My, I'm not in the right brain space, or I need to take a break. You're very forthright about sharing that with your work colleagues, uh, or at least with yeah. me. 
Um, and uh, that's a that's a really healthy uh, approach from my perspective too. Um, this is an open-ended conversation. We've got lots to talk about. Who wants to uh, weigh in with a topic of their own? I was just going to say on that point, uh, Vincent, you know I'm going to bring it up. As a millennial, <laughs> I find ah, Thank uh, you. Wait, wait. Hold on. I'm ringing a little bell. Hold on. I'm ringing a little bell. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Sorry. I, that's actually a medication bottle. But, um, <laughs> I would love you, that the skill set of being able to disclose your mental illness, not even your mental illness, or just being able to say, I need time for my own mental health and well-being, that skill set is something you also have to build. And it's a, it's kind of a balance because you're, you're scared when you start a new job. I'm six months in at Dalhousie and I disclosed to my director actually two weeks ago. Um, but it's kind of, you don't want to say, I need time and think, oh, what if they think I'm not capable of doing my work? What if they think I'm not good enough? What if they think I'm not ready to be here? And all those things run through your head. Um, but if you don't take the time and tell people that you need the space to work on yourself or just a mental break, there will come a point where you can no longer do your work. And I find that kind of helps me to remember to have that conversation before I get to the stage where I'm so overwhelmed I'm not doing a good job. So by giving yourself that extra day off, that mental wellness day, I'm ensuring that in the months to come I'm going to perform well at my job. And I think that as someone who's young, that can be intimidating, but having those open conversations, they get easier as you have them more often. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to add to that, you know, when I was younger, I quit jobs all the time. Like I loved my job and it would get so stressful. And the only tool I had was leave. And when I was at CAMH, I've been here for nine years. And I said, you know, this is the job I want to stay at. And so knowing that, that there's a longer trajectory, it gives you more permission to take what you need when you need it because you know you're in it for the long haul. And it's about building a different toolkit so that it isn't just, I'm frustrated, I'm burnt out, I'm quitting. It's actually, okay, this is how I can overcome that. And that's been a real um, challenge for me is trying to understand when to stay, where before I was very clear about when to leave, um, but now it's about when to stay and how to do that differently. And I don't regret leaving other environments, but it has been a bit of a shift. And exactly what you said, if I don't take what I need now, I'm not going to be good then and sort of seeing it as a longer continuum. important for managers. Go ahead, Siobhan. Oh, I was just saying, I think it's important for managers to ensure mm-hmm. they're, they're checking in with their staff and giving them mm-hmm. that space, especially mm-hmm. new employees who might not be comfortable, um, just giving them that space to say, like, are you doing all right? It's okay if you're not. Like, mm-hmm. And, like, opening up that they, they are stressed out or they're feeling a certain way. I think that really helps the two-way dialogue to have a conversation. Well, you, you, you heard in my opening um, uh, short monologue about, uh, you know, describing the, the commercial for the sector, you know, mm-hmm. stress, uh, burnout. Um, I, you touched on something, Suzanne, that I, I, I think is, is implied in a lot of the statistics about the, the high turnover in the sector mm-hmm. and so forth. You know, it, I, it's got to be in everybody's interest, not just personally, but also professionally to get better at this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having people choose uh, using a sledgehammer approach, and I, I appreciate it. I wasn't um, that, that quitting was your only option. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, you know, of course you've evolved since then, um, in terms of your thinking around it. So, but I just think that's a really um, interesting observation and probably more true in the sector than we'd like to admit. Mm-hmm. 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 Lorene, I, um, yeah. I, I, I want to bring, bring forward a, a conversation and, and I think, 
uh, all of us can have something, some thoughts around it. But I know the word recovery intersects very strongly with two two of you on the call, yourself uh, and Suzanne. And I want to maybe start off with what – there's a really neat thing you've been doing at uh, CMHA, and I know it's not – um, uh, uh, directly related to this, but it's not in not directly related to this, which is Recovery College. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we, um, <clears throat> you know, I, the story of Recovery College really stemmed from the 2013 flood in Calgary, and you know, we were a small organization at that time that really uh, focused on one or two percent of the population. And after the flood, we realized there were so many people impacted across ages, stages, uh, um, economic conditions. And we had to rethink what could we do to support and build resiliency. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, and we found, you know, I, I was building this peer school because, uh, uh, we were given an investment by the government to support the lived experience going into places and working with people that were feeling very isolated after the flood. And if, you know, those who've lived here know that there were, there were, there were thousands of people still kind of locked behind, um, houses trying to build, rebuild basements with a lot of personal and economic stress. And, uh, so we had to really think about the long-term supports we could give. So we, we looked far and wide, and I'm a big believer in watching what's happening in the the, uh, the UK and that the National Health Service, because they support so many millions of people, and they have to do it very cost-effectively. And one of the opportunities we found was the recovery college. And all recovery colleges is uh, shifting uh, the skills, the skill building that uh, most people need to, uh, instead of a clinical model, to an educational model. And uh, we saw the research in the UK, and it was fantastic to see the outcomes when immediately you're treated like a student, not a patient or a client. That in itself gives a boost of empowerment. So we we uh, studied and met with the UK and, and the Recovery College model there and built on it to put more peer support uh, into our Recovery College. So it's over 30 courses that are co-designed by our staff with lived experience, and they take the tips and tricks that would have helped them at different stages of their recovery and build that into bite-sized courses up to, you know, eight-week eight courses. So it's, I call it Netflix for mental health, <laughs> where if a course works, <laughs> That's awesome. you know, you're just giving us the title for the, for the episode. Right. Yeah, so, uh, it's, yeah. Netflix for mental health is definitely yeah. a, a candidate. Yeah. So that's, really, that's it's, so it takes a lot of stress. We're measuring everybody's outcomes, so you get your own data back that you can take to your clinician. Sure. Uh, and our the, the clinical community is thrilled because you know what happens between your six month visits if you're motivated. Uh, you can bring back data that shows you've increased hope, connection, belonging, and uh, the ability to ask for help, which are very interesting outcome indicators. And uh, we're, we're seeing uh, so much joy and happiness and reduction of suffering uh, when people can just walk in. And you think of people that are on medical leave, they can come in while on medical leave and start their recovery journey. So uh, uh, we have a lot of evaluation on it. We have some great funders, and uh, we're really excited to see how far we can go with uh, I hope you. I hope you can roll it out across, across Alberta and the country. So that's awesome. 
Thanks for sharing that. Suzanne, I want to I want to dig in for a second um, with you around that language of recovery. But just before mm-hmm. I do, Lorene, um, so Kelly knows this, but I live in a part of Calgary that was actually flooded. And uh, I didn't know that that was the genesis of Recovery College, um, was that was the flood flood piece. And I remember we we weren't locked in, obviously we weren't in that issue, but there I could see lots of people in our in our street that were. And but I do remember the anxiety the following year when it started to rain. So uh, you know floods are signature events in people's lives and other things like that. So I just find it so interesting that that was the impetus for Recovery mm-hmm. College. So thanks for sharing that. Suzanne, one of the, the most amazing things I loved about um, our engagement with CAMH was learning about the newer philosophies in mental health. Of course, mm-hmm. you live and breathe them, but that idea uh, uh, that we're moving away from, from confinement and into recovery is such mm-hmm. such a lived uh, experience literally in the Queen Street West area. I wonder if you want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that and maybe some of the aspects of resilience that Lorene was talking about. Yeah, um, it's been really a privilege to be here at this time as Canada is really, you know, driving ahead a conversation about mental health in some ways really far ahead of a lot of other countries um, and getting to see this kind of symbol of what that kind of conversation means. Um, when I started here, this was in, in 2010, so not a long time ago, um, we had patients who had lived here lived here as a home in tiny little prison-like rooms for 60 years. That was what was expected. If you disclosed a mental illness or or had a, some kind of thing happen publicly, you were just locked away. And there was no sense of recovery. And, and some of that was because there were very poor um, research, very little evidence, not a lot of funding, not a lot of new treatments. Um, really, up until, you know, our relatively new human history, the best you could hope for was a spontaneous recovery. And when I see folks who have been here for so long and, you know, had some, you know, doctors and, and, and staff with the best of intentions, but some pretty antiquated ways of going about treatment. You know, it's, it's really, um, it's really important that we don't perpetuate that and we don't continue doing that. So part of what we're trying to do here at CAMH, which has been embodied in this sort of physical redevelopment of new buildings and all of this stuff, is to just get all the way rid of these very, very prison-like spaces. And they, and I'm, I'm using that intentionally because it was built like a prison. And I've met psychiatric nurses from the 70s, from the 80s, from even later, who said, like, you know, I'm not a nurse. I was hired because I'm strong, and my job was to push somebody in the room and close the door. And that was really what treatment looked like. And no wonder there's stigma, because if you disclosed, if you took any steps forward, that could have been your outcome. And so the idea that we can actually keep people in the community using exceptional services like the one you were talking about, like Recovery College, like great community providers, keep people living in their networks and their community and treat mental health like a chronic issue, like a, like diabetes, like any other chronic issue. Sometimes you might need hospitalization. Most of the time you need a checkup, you need services, you need a loving and joyful community around you. That's what's important. And being able to build these, you know, you know, very simple things like a wa- like a, a room that has its own washroom instead of lining up with 20 other people to shower. You know, these very simple things that we would demand in any other healthcare setting, bringing that into the mental health space is so, so important. And every day I come into work, there's a beautiful piece of street art. We're in a very fun neighborhood in Toronto. 
I'm at Queen and Ossington. We've got graffiti alleys. We've got tons of artists. And there's this beautiful um, commissioned piece of street art that overlooks Cam H um, that just says, you've changed. And that's really what I think about every that's day, awesome. the idea that people can change, that the space can change, that the neighborhood can change. And I think there used to be this sort of inevitability around mental illness. Like if somebody is suicidal, they'll just find a way to die. Or if somebody is sick, they'll never get better. And that's just not true today. And having this whole variety of services around people that help them recover in their own way is so important and that keep people in the community. That's what we really need. And that's what we all need to be demanding from our governments, from our donors, from everybody that's really passionate about this. I love it. So if you haven't been to Queen Street West, I mm-hmm. encourage you to go and walk the neighborhood. You can go to a mm-hmm. Starbucks on the corner uh, somewhere there, and it's very likely that uh, there will be a, 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 a patients of CAMH who are in the neighborhood. And so it's not uncommon. I, I use this kind of language of saying, you know, in front of you will be a, a young mother with twins talking to her girlfriend, and behind you will be someone without a shirt on talking to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it, uh, it 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 really um, really uh, civilizes the entire experience, and I love that mm-hmm. aspect. Um, Kelly, uh, Siobhan, uh, you know, you've heard you've heard two amazing professionals talk about uh, different aspects of change. What are your thoughts uh, or or um, inspirations from that? Uh, I love. For me, I love hearing um, the work that's being done in this space. It really excites me. Um, I moved back to a province that right now um, isn't getting what they need from the government, yep. in my opinion, um, yep. which is very unfortunate. I'm, ex- I'm extremely privileged. Uh, I can afford private care, uh, but it breaks my heart knowing that there's many other people in the province of Nova Scotia who aren't getting what they need. Um, but it's great to hear of organizations and nonprofits who are working in this space to try and fill that gap um, while we don't get what we need from the government. And I definitely agree. We need to keep demanding that mental health is just health. It's mm-hmm. health. It's part of your health, and it need, it should be taken care of. And I think it's just, it's uh, yeah, it's exciting to hear what you guys are doing. Another possible totally tagline, mental health <laughs> is just health. Kelly, what are your thoughts? My tagline was, it's an everyone thing, right? Everyone mm-hmm. has some sort of feeling, and Lorene, I, I got I got the privilege of working with Lorene last year, and I learned so much, not only about my own mental health, but, you know, everyone else around me and how willing to help, and what a beautiful group of people to work with. You know, I was really lucky. I got to go in um, about twice a week. Um, I, I just left my previous role at the University of Calgary, and I thought, what a wonderful place. You know, I really enjoyed it. I met um the peer support workers i met uh people who actually you know had been there done that and now helping others like it was just such an amazing opportunity mm-hmm. for me but again mm-hmm. back to my own like i realized too how much it has affected me over the years and i probably just put it aside right like so allowing us to really think about our mental health and how we can make some changes was uh super important uh, for me just personally and, you know, allowing myself to have those down days has been something I've worked on for a long time and that it's going to be okay tomorrow. I can usually look at myself and realize that I'm tired and, you know, haven't done all those things, the workout, the eating right, the maybe stayed up too late all the weekend, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and I don't mean to belittle all those 
um, people that have something more serious, but that's what can lead to it, you know, if you're not careful. And I think, um, I think we were talking a little bit about that before, you know, again, just keeping care of yourself and learning that it's okay if you don't feel okay. So mm. anyway, thanks, Lorraine. It was I, good. I love Well, and if I could add, if I could add, uh, Vincent, uh, Kelly helped my mental health because uh, she, seriously, as, as we talk about the nonprofit sector and, and trying to meet the needs of our community, um, you know, Kelly came in and with her calm, caring way and just became part of the team. And, and you know, we had lots of stressful interactions and with others as we tried to build a, a really community-based and up uh, strategy for people to feel connected to us and uh, you know again I, I just was grateful to have uh, such a great partner to work side by side with and uh, yes so thank you for improving my mental health Kelly thank you well I, I, I love those conversations about uh, these two organizations CAMH and uh, CMHA um, and if if the front doors of an organization are indicative of the overall culture and mission and and philosophy, um, I think both of these organizations, I've had the privilege of seeing both. So one of my favorite spots uh, uh, to have visited last year was your organization, Maureen, when in your welcome center, was just sitting on the couch uh, one time waiting for a meeting to start. And I think I was there for 10 minutes just observing, um, uh, you know, the students uh, uh, or, 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 or clients and also your team, which was very millennial-ish in the welcome center. Um <laughs> And a and super awesome Yay. environment. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a great experience and, and very open. Uh, lots of conversations going on. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. And then at Cam H, my I remember my very first visit to the Bell Gateway Building, which is where uh, Suzanne works. And you you walk in the main floor, and you know that this is an institution in many ways, but also an organization. And you're not really sure of how it works. And so and it's also focused around mental health. So I had no idea what to expect. Um, but walking into the main lobby, there's not this oppressive uh, sort of barrier presence. It's very open and op- welcoming. There, there is actually a security presence at CAMH, but it's not very visible. Like uh, I think they wear almost like blue jeans and and uh, and, uh, and 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 t-shirts. Um, but uh, I, I might be wrong, Suzanne. But the, the idea that this is not like some uh, uh, prison that you're walking into mm-hmm. was very much lived at CAMH. And so I really love that idea that their front, your, your front doors told me a lot about what the organizations were living and breathing. The folks in the teams are actually, um, they're our community ambassadors, and they are folks who have lived experience. Um, so we do have a security presence like any hospital would. But it's not um, visible. No, not at all. And our community ambassadors actually are at our front desk walking all around the campus, and they know and and have lived through treatment here at CAMH, understand what folks might be going through, and they walk up to everybody they see and just check in, how are you, do you know where you're going? With the construction, we're a little bit of a maze. They'll walk people to the spaces. They'll make sure everybody's got what they need, and it's such a different environment because it's so proactive and so welcoming and so friendly in that way, which is often what you need when you're in crisis and when you mm-hmm. need when when you are in a rough spot to know that you're in the right place and people here are going to be taking care of you as that whole person. Absolutely. Well, it worked, it, I, you know, we're, we're, we're coming, as usual, 
uh, the, you can't do any topic like this justice in, in uh, the short amount of time that we have. So I can see, you know, uh, uh, the podcast series on mental health unfolding as we go forward. I know uh, I won't steal your thunder about what you're doing in this arena, Lorraine. You can probably talk about that when I turn the, the, the podium over to you in a minute or so. But I just want to thank everyone for the great conversations, the great observations. Um, I hope we can do more of this. Um, I can't wait to revisit it, uh, you know, when we when we go forward and look at um, other podcasts uh, later this year and next year. Um, thank you all. You've all been great guests. Uh, Lorene, Suzanne, uh, Kelly, Siobhan, I can't I can't wait to have all of you back in our podcast. But but before we go, I want to give each of you a chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, uh, you know, what the best places where people can reach you or what what you want people to think about or remember um, from today. So, Suzanne, we're going to start with you. Anything you want mm-hmm. our listening audience to know? Yeah, I just I just want to kind of wrap up by saying it's important to talk up. It's important to talk. It's important to speak up. It's important to support those people around you. And um, CMHA has fantastic resources. Um, CAMH has great resources. We have, as leaders in workplaces, a duty to inquire when we see somebody is not doing okay. We can't be afraid of that conversation. Go to either of our websites. Um, I go to yours all the time, uh, the CMHA website, for great <laughs> tips on how to start that conversation conversation where resources might be available. We need to, as leaders and and as fundraisers and people interacting with the public in any way that we're doing, we need to role model what inclusivity looks like and what authenticity looks like, and we need to feel equipped to have those conversations and empowered to have those conversations in our workplace, with our friends, with everybody that we're around. And I think that's going to be the thing that we need to do as a country to be able to really break down those last barriers. Wow, I actually got out of my chair. <laughs> that was inspiring. Thank you, Dad. Uh, Kelly, uh, wh- what do you what do you want to share with our listening audience? Just that no matter what, you know, if you need assistance, it's there. I think I remember last year when I was working with CMHA that you know so many people I thought don't know this is even here, and so if I can shout out to the world from this podcast is that. All the services are there. They're really easy to access. The people are wonderful, and they will help you through. And nobody needs to know the difference if you're worried about even any kind of, um, you know, people knowing what you're doing. Um, I think that's number one. Number two, if you want to get in touch, um, you can always reach us through our website, uh, betrayogroup.ca, and um, I'd be happy to be an ear as well if anybody ever wants to. So thanks. Thanks, Kelly. All right, Siobhan, the stage is yours. Yeah, so um, I'd just like to say, like, thanks. first, thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. I'm excited to come uh, to Toronto and see this campus. Mm-hmm. Um, Anytime. <laughs> oh, it's um, awesome. And, the, and lots of great restaurants, too. Perfect. Sounds like a great time. Uh, I would like to say, yeah, I work at uh, Dalhousie um, University. I do planned giving. I think it's uh, – I don't – directly fundraise for mental health, but I think uh, our post-secondaries need to be a leader here for our students, for the communities. Um, and so if anyone wants to know what Dalhousie is doing in that arena, happy to talk about it. If anybody wants to know, talk about planned giving, always my favorite, estate, bequest, that's my that's my place. Um, you can reach out to me on my LinkedIn page or I'm siobhan.doherty at dal.ca. Uh, and anyone who wants to reach out to discuss disclosing in your workplace, 
what are the benefits, what are the risks, um, how do you have that conversation, I'm happy to walk through. This is my uh, third position and this is the third place that I've disclosed um, my mental illness to. Um, and I think it's important to remember everyone has mental health. So even if you don't have a mental illness, you should take care of that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's Thanks, Siobhan. Maureen, you, you get to be the capper. You oh, to, thank you. Close out the show. <laughs> well, real honor to be uh, with all of you today. And, and I think uh, as you're hearing, uh, this really is about um, unique and unique journeys uh, from Siobhan to the beautiful work that CAMH is doing. I had an opportunity to tour it with one of my favorite people, Dr. David Goldblum. Uh, So, you know, I got to see CAMH and was able to bring some of that vision back to CMHA Calgary. And, um, you know, I think a reminder to the audience that only six cents of every healthcare dollar goes into mental health and substance use supports. And the majority of that goes into... Six percent. Six, That's crazy. Six percent. And on top of that, um, I'll, a plug for community resources. We're uh, usually at the bottom of the barrel, so we're probably less than one cent because the majority of the money goes upstream to the most uh, formalized uh, services uh, inpatient care. So, you know, uh, you know, it's really important to balance, and this is not about taking money or competing from one side to the other. And I've worked really hard in Calgary to bring everyone around the table to say, you know, if if we're investing, um, where can we all invest so that we're not fundraising in silos and we're really building a strong continuum of care? Because uh, we all don't have CAMHs um, in the middle of our, our, our cities. So how do we create a virtual CAMH and knit it all together? And I think Petreo and, and CAMH creates uh, great leadership for that. And also, Shimon, keep up the good work. Um, every person you talk to, you're making a difference. And um, again, just so thrilled for the opportunity. And thank you for hosting this. Well, thank you, Lorraine. And thank you all. Uh, with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when our topic will be life and career hacks. What I would tell my 20-year-old fundraising self if I could go back in time. This will be our second annual live podcast from Edmonton in partnership with AFP Edmonton and Area. Joining us will be Jane Potentier, Jen Penteluk, Tony Myers, and Mike House. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at betrayalgroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.